it's just an important lesson for everyone who's listening that the system, when you expand the services that we do to save people's lives on the other side of the world, there are blind spots and casualties of the process. And we just have to remember as we have the ability as leaders to intervene and say like, we're gonna fix this hole. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Army Lieutenant Colonel Christian Labra is a family physician who currently serves as Deputy Commander for Clinical Services and Chief Medical Officer at Shape Healthcare Facility in Belgium. Dr. Labra had a unique experience of encountering the military health system as a patient when he was injured as a field artillery officer on a patrol in Iraq. He describes his care from the point of injury through evacuation to treatment, recovery, and rehabilitation. He explains how the experience led him to pursue a career in medicine and how it impacted his perspective in caring for wounded warriors, as well as the healthcare team participating in the treatment of this patient population. Find out more about Dr. Labra and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist. Today, we're privileged to welcome Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Christian Labra to Wardox. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So, Chris, you attended West Point and you graduated in 2001. Tell us a little bit about your journey to joining the Army. That's actually may be the hardest question to answer because I'm not really sure. I grew up in New York. My family was relatively patriotic. I didn't come from a long military culture. I had been exposed to West Point in my childhood, rarely, but I knew it existed. And then I think around somewhere around my freshman or junior year, it just got to be a something that was planted in my head that I, I wanted to do. And I think that I knew having a structured educational experience would be something that would be important for me. And, and then I just went after it, I think. So you graduated and your branch was field artillery and you graduate the summer of 2001 and the world changed on 9-11. How did that change in your world? So I graduated and I, I went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and I knew I was going to Germany. And at the time, my unit was slated to go to Kosovo. And, and that just seemed like this huge, wow, six months of my life is going to be in Kosovo, right, as a lieutenant. And I was in Fort Sill, and we were actually on an observation post training on how to adjust artillery fire as an observer. And I remember they it was before cell phones, I think maybe very rudimentary cell phones at the time. There was definitely no data cell phones. And someone over a, over a walkie-talkie reports that we have to shut down the range. And it was kind of this murmuring that, a plane had gone into the World Trade Center. And that was interesting at the time because we had a, a National Guard soldier who was on the observation post with us who worked in somewhere in the 90s floor of the World Trade Center, but he was at training and that's why he was not at his job. And it was just very apparent from, I would say, that day to within a week, we knew that our military careers were going to be very different. 
So you were assigned to a field artillery battalion in Baumholder, Germany, as part of the 1st Armored Division. What was your impression initially while you were at West Point or when you initially started on active duty about the military healthcare system? I knew approaching nothing about it. I embarrassingly probably didn't know the difference between the medic, the doc, the PA doc, and our profus doc. It was just kind of this other thing that existed that I knew nothing about. So you got a chance to deploy with your unit to Iraq in 2003. What was the role of your unit there, number one? And, and specifically, what was your role? What were you doing? So I was a platoon leader of about, I think we were, depending on when exactly you asked, we were between 30 and 40 guys. And initially, 1st Armored Division, I mean, this is my 20-year-later lieutenant understanding of, of what was going on. But initially, we were supposed to deploy through Turkey and provide a front from Turkey, but then Turkey closed their airspace early on and the mission changed that then we would follow after 3rd Infantry Division. And at that point, they didn't know if there was going to be chemical weapons or something that would bog down the 3rd ID. And then we would kind of fight through 3rd ID towards Baghdad. And that's obviously not what happened. The defense of the Iraqi troops was fleeting. And I think we crossed the berm to go drive up towards Baghdad when the Saddam statue fell. It was like about the same day. So you were injured while you were on that deployment. Tell us about where you were and what you were doing on that morning. What, did you, it was just another day, n nothing out of the, the ordinary? Pretty much. So I got hurt around the seven month mark. And when we first got to Baghdad, there was a lot of anticipation and, but honestly, there were parades almost, it seemed like when we left the base. And there was just this kind of insidious increasing violence over those seven months before I got hurt, where towards the end of it, we were getting mortared, we were getting the IDs, you know, we were patrolling. And what happened on, when I got hurt was our unit, because we were an artillery unit, we had a radar. And so for what that means to people who, who may not have experience with artillery is that the radar can kind of create, it can triangulate back a ballistic trajectory. So if, if a mortar is shooting at you, the radar can quickly figure out where it came from. And later on, that became kind of a more common defense for FOBs. They had like the task force mortar. And, but early on, artillery units were the only people who had that ability. So we had gotten mortared the day that, that I got hurt. And basically what happened was we were wrapping up the day. We were thinking we we're all going to bed and we get a mortar attack. And my commander said, hey, you have to go out and go out and do a show of force patrol. So we bring the platoon out. And we had patrolled these, this neighborhood probably a hundred times or more before then. And another thing that just I have to explain because it won't make much sense is that for people who have never been to Baghdad, the city, it's got incredible pockets of population density, just very people all over the place. And then right in the middle of the city, there's these palm groves, which are palm tree. They're like cinder block walled off farms that are right in the middle of the city. Unclear who was responsible for them or what they did there. But when we got up into Baghdad, another thing that people may forget is that the intent was that 
Baghdad would be like kind of the last stand. And so there was weapons and ammunition everywhere. When we drove in, it was not uncommon to walk, drive by a school and see an anti-aircraft gun just on the roof of the school or high-rise buildings with weapons on top of them. And these palm groves were also places that we presume that the Iraqi army had stored a bunch of ammo and weapons. And we had found about a month earlier, had found a huge cache of explosives and mortars. And and so it was not an unreasonable thought to think that these palm groves were kind of a, a very opportune place to attack our base from because it was close by and it was easy to get into and out of. And so we're patrolling along this road and there's a cinder block wall on both sides of the road. And the cinder block wall is about an eight foot high wall. And there's three strands of concertina along the top of the, of the wall. And there's glass that's kind of like mixed into cement on the top of the wall. And just 200 meter stretch of wall and it's dark out kind of nighttime. We come up to a spot where there's a pipe that's like at a 45 degree angle up to the wall. And there's barbed wires pulled down. So it's like it creates like a little bit of a droopy spot where the barbed wire goes below the top edge of the wall and there's no glass there. And so clearly people were climbing into the farms through this over this pipe. At the time, in the middle of the night, what became one of the most important decisions in my life was that the the pipe was there first, probably not that someone put the pipe there to climb over the wall. So NCO comes up to me and says, hey, I know how they're getting into the palm groves. And it was just a, a split second decision kind of in, at night saying like, oh, okay, pull the pipe and then throw it over the wall and let's move on. So they pull the pipe and the wall fell on me and we didn't tell people what we we're doing. So it's dark. All of a sudden there's a commotion and a crash and I start yelling and people don't know whether we're being attacked or what's happening. So it got pretty chaotic pretty quickly. So all of a sudden it's at night, you're crushed by this wall and you can't get out. What kind of care did you initially receive? Did you have buddy care? Were there medics? How, how, what was that point of injury care? Yeah. So we had a medic and I remember like everyone's trying to make sense of the chaos. People are yelling, trying to, and I remember the medic who we actually had before we deployed, he got in trouble. So he was actually amongst the lowest ranking people because he lost his rank. And I remember him just yelling, shut the up and took charge of the situation. You know, it's just exactly what we train medics to do in the, that kind of chaos. And all of a sudden, the lowest, lowest ranking guy had expert knowledge, and he was the guy that everyone looked to to say, what do we do now, Doc? It was pretty amazing. Were there anybody else in your unit that were crushed by the wall, or were you the only casualty? So I think the guy who pulled the, wall, the pipe, he kind of took a step. I was kind of, I think I grabbed the pipe, but he walked away from the wall. And so I was kind of still there at the point where most of the cinder blocks fell. So I was the only one who got hurt. What kind of stuff did the medic do when he first came upon you? It was a little hazy. I remember him kind of doing a head to toe kind of compression for injuries. And he was able to diagnose that I had fractured both my left femur and right tib fib. 
and he applied a traction splint in the field. And then what was different then is now like he didn't really package me the way I think nowadays we package it casually. It was a Cassie vac. They just threw me on a stretcher and on the back of a high back hum- Humvee and we just drove fast back to the aid station. So I'm sure that your adrenaline's just pumping high. How much pain were you in? And when was the first time you got <laughs> something to help with that? This was pre pill and pocket. I don't think the medic had any morphine on him. I did not get any kind of pain medicine until I got to the Baghdad ER. So I, I got evaluated in our aid station and there was a, a primary and secondary survey again that occurred there. So it was probably about an hour before I got pain meds. So how long was it from the point of injury to where you got to the battalion aid station and what medical care was available there? So it was about a, a five minute drive and that began like one of my memorable themes of my evacuation is just that I'm in the back of the Humvee and someone's driving very fast and the medic is just telling him to slow down. And when you're in the war zone, there's no smooth roads. And I feel like the worst job in the military is to be the evacuation driver, whether that's the Kazivak Humvee or the bus that goes from Ramstein to Launchstool, because there's just no speed that is perfect where you're going fast enough to satisfy the guys in the back without causing groans of pain from <laughs> the patients. I just imagine at each stage, like the the poor driver just saying like, I can't. But they drove me past very quickly, like five minutes, I got to our aid station. And because it was a quiet night, I believe that there was probably about 30 people milling around and they did the primary and secondary survey again. So the PA then took charge in the aid station. And I remember just things that kind of stuck out was that's when they filled out my casualty feeder card. And um, that was when the initial realization that this is an accident and not a caused by enemy contact. So no purple heart for me. And then they stripped me of my clothes. And I remember that they first cut my pants off and they were easily able to visually diagnose that I had a deformity of my thigh. Then they cut my boot off and I had an open tib-fib fracture. And that was kind of funny because, you know, at this point I'm probably already in shock, but they like all jumped on me to not look at it as if that was, I think that's like a Hollywood move, but I just remember that. And then they cut my underwear off and that's where I learned about pelvic fractures. And I remember my PA leaning over me and it like got silent in the room and he told me that I was bleeding from a, he used a slang term for the meatus, And that became my main concern as a, as a patient. But that's where we discovered that I had broke both sides of my pelvis as well. And then later we'd find out that I had broken my transverse pro- process of my, one of my vertebrae. As a urologist, that is a, a symptom <laughs> that, that does tend to get people's attention. So when you're at the aid station, how did they get you to the Baghdad ER? Did they find smoother roads or did you go by helicopter? Yeah. So they, they threw me in an FLA and our base was about, we were just west of the green zone. There was an area called Haifa Street. We were kind of just west of the Baghdad Zoo. So it was not a far trip, actually. It was probably another 
10 minutes. And that's, I think that's why they decided to not give me pain meds because they were just thinking, we're going to get to the ER. They're going to want to take him to surgery sooner than later. And I remember pulling up to the Baghdad ER and the surgeon comes out and he says, this is going to suck. And he put traction on my femur fracture and I don't remember anything. And then next thing I woke up postoperatively. So along the way, these pelvic fractures and long bone fractures can bleed a lot. Did you require resuscitation along the way? And what, what did they do? I'm not sure what happened downrange. So I was a casualty of lost medical records when I got to launch stool, but I did require two units of blood. I think my H&H was like six and 18 or something at, at the, at the nader. So I ended up getting two units at launch stool. So when you're at the Baghdad ER, you meet the surgeon, you've got an open tip fib, you got pelvic fracture, you got closed fractures, and they say, hey, we're going to the OR. What, what did they do in the OR and how long were you in Baghdad? So I don't remember ever being consent. You know, it was all, I just passed out when they evaluated me and I woke up with two X fixes on both legs, one on each leg and a Foley woke up with a Foley in and a nurse telling me it's okay and running her hand through my hair. <laughs> you know, it was like a surreal experience. And the travesty, the, the kind of trauma of our system is that I was evacuated so fast because I got there in the middle of the night. I had surgery. I woke up. It was morning time and I was on a helicopter to Biop, Baghdad Airport by lunchtime. And so my battalion commander came in and he had said goodbye. And I was a wreck because I realized that my war was over about that time. And I think one of the lasting kind of traumas of it was that I was evacuated so fast. I never said goodbye to some people who eventually died. It's just, it's a weird problem of modern medicine. And another thing that was notable about the time in the Baghdad ER is that word got back through to my parents through the rear D that I had been hurt. And the telephone game that they got was your son got hurt. He broke his back. He might be paralyzed. And so my parents, that's just like not a lot of information and you jump to the worst possibility. And luckily, one of the nurses in, in the post-op suite got me a satellite phone and I, I called them not far after they heard word. Even though I don't have a big medical cultural history, my mom's a nurse. So she kind of like gave me the, can you move your toes? Kind of what's going on? And I gave her a visual assessment of my situation. And I think that that was very helpful. And it's just one of those things that when you, of all the things that are traumatic, now being a father myself, just knowing that what they must have gone through, it makes me appreciate how important it is to get accurate information to, to the people who are worried. When were you aware of the full extent of your injuries? Did you know everything that you had when you were in Baghdad or was it when you were in launch tool? Uh, probably in launch tool. I knew, I knew that I'd broken my legs. At this point, I knew that my groin was all black and blue and that wasn't good, but I didn't know much about why that had happened. So when I was evacuated, I got to Kuwait and I think I spent a night in Kuwait and 
I started to get sick in Kuwait. Like I remember having graggers and just being very uncomfortable then. And I, I started developing a problem where I was getting retrograde bleeding into my bladder and I was clotting off my foleys. And then I would have visceral pain from like it happened once on the on the plane from Kuwait to launch duel where my foley just wasn't draining. And so they actually gave me a super pubic cath in the air. I, I knew that things were not good then, but it wasn't until I got to launch duel that I think I got a full accounting of what was going on. So tell us a little bit about that experience at launch duel. How many more surgeries did you have to have and, and what kind of things were they doing? Launch duel was an interesting experience for me because one, I got there and I got there on a weekend and I, I just remember I had to get, because I had the Foley clawed off in the, or clawed, yeah, clawed off on the plane, they realized that I was bleeding more than they expected. And so the, they called in urologist and my nurse who he was just finishing his shift and Parker Hahn, he's a battalion commander here in, in Germany. He stayed after a shift and surreal experience of him wheeling me down to the urology suite and like literally turning lights on to go to the scope suite and the urologist coming in and, and he put some contrast in to see where I was injured and replaced my Foley with a garden hose variety. It was the first in many, many people did amazing things for me, but Parker Hahn was the first person where it was like. This was a human who was my age, who was, would be my friend and became my friend. There was a face to the kindness that was just not a transient. He took me on the next shift and would do little acts of kindness, like bringing in DVDs for me to watch. And I'll probably end up talking about a couple people, but there's just a, a debt I can't ever repay. Was your family able to join you in, in Germany? Yeah, they were. And, and it's interesting because this is where another family kind of came in to assist. One of the labor and delivery nurses had a daughter who was going to West Point and somehow found out that I had been hurt and came after her shift. And she just came and visited and realized like I hadn't been shaved. I had swaths of sterility mixed into the unclean parts that had not been cleaned from Baghdad. And she stayed after her long OB shift and, and cleaned me and shaved me. And then also kind of helped sponsor my family because then my family was able to fly out. And that was another interesting kind of experience was that not many people their families, because they would eventually go to Walter Reed, not many people came out to Germany. I was in a weird situation because I was definitively treated by having, like you asked about the the surgeries, I ended up having IM nails placed in my left femur and right tibia. And by the letter of the law, I was definitively treated. So I didn't get evacuated to Walter Reed. I'll talk about some ways that that was an unintended negative that I think the system didn't account for. But really, in the big scheme of my experience, that ended up being a huge gift to me because I was like the guy who stayed, whereas everyone else was packaged up and they got washed out and sent to Walter Reed. I was the guy who, despite my own internal despair, I was, 
I think, a pretty good patient and very grateful for their care. And they saw me go from horizontal to vertical. And um, that was a gift that the people were so kind to me. And I, I think I was able to be a patient that they saw get better, which is important for people who are at a way station type medical center that are just seeing people either die or be evacuated. So that was a, a great part of it. Was part of it because your unit was stationed in Germany? That was the main reason was just because I was stationed in Baumholder. And the flaw with that was that because of the extended deployment, Baumholder was a ghost town. So there was no like rear D really to go back to. I lived off post. I had a million stairs in my house. Like there was no way that I could recover there. And so what the army did was that it did allow me to get two months of con leave, but I had to buy my own flight. And I, I flew in the back of a, in a Lufthansa flight with my legs unable to be bent on my, my mom's lap. And just in retrospect, like probably not the best clotting scenario. And I think that it's just an important lesson for everyone who's listening that the system, when you expand the services that we do to save people's lives on the other side of the world, there are blind spots and casualties of the process. And we just have to remember as we have the ability as leaders to intervene and say like, hey, we're going to fix this hole. And it, I think these things did get fixed. It was just the difficulty of early in a war to get people around the world in a way that is safe. So you actually had the chance to make some recommendations of, of how care could be delivered. What were some of those specific recommendations that you had? One idea that I had, because I felt grateful, felt like I could use my experiences to help other people who are going through it. So I thought of like a kind of hometown recruiting process where they take someone who did well in recovery and make them like a hometown recruiter at one of the medical centers and just be kind of like a experience officer, almost like a, a lay case manager for that person. Because a lot of the things that, that I ended up realizing that I could help with were just educating people on the system. The people involved in the system were too busy with the medical care that you don't know who to call. You don't know who, like what the next step in the process is. And for some, for a lot of the people in the system, like they only know their slice of the pie. Once that person evacs to the next level, they lose their knowledge of what that part of the experience is going to be. So they aren't necessarily able to give good advice as to what to expect. And so one was the hometown recruiter. I had the idea of, I felt like maybe a way would be to almost like ask for a, a call to service of Vietnam vets who had significant injuries. Just because for me as a patient, I, I felt when I could talk to someone who understood what it was like, that was helpful. And then honestly, I, I don't want to take too much credit because I don't think I, it was the catalyst for this, but I did feel later on that one of the things that I felt personally was that when I was at home on R&R &R and, and I felt like I was drifting, I was adrift for a number of reasons. And 
one of the things that I learned from the experience, which I, I don't think we do a good job in educating patients about is when I got hurt, the world stopped for me and people came out of the woodwork to do amazing things for me. I mean, people were reaching out and it, it was hard for me because people were treating me like a hero and I didn't feel like I was a hero. In fact, I felt like I had kind of left the war in a way that was not the honorable way I expected to leave. But people did all these great things, the world stopped. But then the normal thing is that you can only take so much leave and bills have to get paid. And I just found myself realizing like I'm just on my parents' spare bedroom taking way too much Percocet than I should. And the world has just moved on. And that was a really hard thing to deal with. And so I kind of felt like being involved in a unit as a wounded soldier would allow you to have purpose. I didn't necessarily think it would end up kind of turning into what the WTUs were. And I think that we learned the challenges of creating a new bureaucracy like that. But the intent was to remind people that they were still soldiers and there needs to be expectations of people even when they're recovering. So otherwise they, they just, it's very easy to fall into a hole that you can't, you know, find a way out of yourself. So I think I read in, in one of the articles that was written about you was that before this happened, you were considering going to law school, becoming a lawyer, but then this obviously changed your world. How did you really get interested in pursuing a career in medicine? I mean, now you're a doctor. How did that happen? I think my whole reason of being interested in the JAG and the FLEP program was I had a mentor who was amazing at, when I was at West Point and just taught the most interesting class. And, and I thought that that was kind of a logical academic interest. What I didn't anticipate was that I would have a doc who was a West Pointer, USIS grad, orthosurgeon. And sometimes people intervene in your life in ways that, you know, it's just when you need it. And I had this person that I very much looked up to. I felt like I needed someone to guide me through the chaos that I was experiencing. And a couple things happened in short succession was that I didn't really think when, when I was a patient that I wanted to be a doc. It was when I was on R&R and I started to feel bad for myself, I was very lucky due to the misfortune of another soldier, but one of my friends got shot in an ambush and the rear D commander called me and said like, Hey, do you think you could help out? The family doesn't know what to do and trying to figure out what the process is. And I'm like two months from my experience. So I'm an expert in the medical evacuation process. And my parents say that that's like kind of the moment that they saw it was like something clicked. And I had this I realized like, oh wait, I could use this for something. And it gave me purpose and it made me feel like I was helpful. And I was able to get back to, to Germany. And I essentially, because he was in the same boat too, he was shot and had a, a nerve injury and was just really sick. And he ended up staying with me because he was stuck in bomb holder too and not evac. So then it was like kind of the blind leading the blind, me and him rehabbing together and just recovering. And 
Then my doc, he was only deployed to launch school when I was hurt. And then he went back, I think, to BAMC. And then he PCS to launch school. So it was just this weird, lucky thing that when I started to recover and I started, I, I also didn't mention a, another series of unfortunate events that happened, but members of my unit got hurt pretty bad when our unit got extended. So at the 12 month mark, first armor division got extended to, it ended up being a 15, 16, 17 month deployment. And guys in my unit got one event was an IED attack that caused a brain injury, shrapnel, uh, penetrating shrapnel into his brain, lost an, an arm in one soldier, and then another soldier lost a leg. And then another soldier had like a soft, significant soft tissue injury. And so again, had this, this influx of chaos and like, I felt like I could help out and I, I felt like I was like an alumni of launch and those guys ended up evacuating to Walter Reed. So that was kind of like a one week crash course in case management for them. And then a little bit later, a suicide bomber had, had killed eight guys in my platoon and injured some others. So like casualty assistance and helping with people who had medical problems became kind of like what we were doing on rear D. So all of that, it was horrible. It was really, really a rough situation. And then, then my unit finally came back and I was now that was like the nail in the coffin for me of, Hey, you know, you've been replaced. Like there's a new platoon leader. You are just an extra guy. And on one hand, that was horrific because it was low point of that. I, I got hurt and was taken out of the fight at an important time, but it was a benefit in that my surgeon came back to launch duel. I was excess. My battalion commander's wife was a useless grad. And so I said, Hey, my, my doc said, why don't you come down to launch tool if you're extra and just shadow me? And I spent about a month at launch tool during the Fallujah offensive. And it was an experience that it just was so opportune in that a lot of the people hadn't PCS who took care of me. So all of a sudden I'm coming back to the hospital saying like, Hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I was the guy who was in the ward for a couple of weeks. And, and now I want, I think I want to go to, into medicine. And these people were like falling over themselves to try to show me anything they could about medicine. I'm so grateful. The people were so good. And then I got more time to be mentored by my doc. And, and that's kind of how it all just started to gain speed. And then I, I realized like, hey, I, I want to do this. And I had to, at this point, I was a non-branch qualified because I, I was just a brand new captain. I'd just been promoted to captain. And I was at this point unclear what my physical limitations would be and a war's going on and the field artillery branch wasn't loving the idea of me going into medicine. And so I actually dropped my refrad because they said they didn't have anything for me. So I dropped my relief from active duty, said, fine, I'll go civilian. And uh, the next day they called me up and said, hey, we have a recruiting job in Albany, New York, if you want to go there. And I did a little bit of research and I knew that they had a ton of schools and it's kind of close-ish to where I'm from. And that's what I did. And I was able to get my prerequisites. Was USU's your only choice or was, how did that come about that you said, I want to go to America's medical school? Yeah, I think that I'm 
impressionable by mentors. And I think that there was just an element of, I felt so indebted to the military health system. I felt so thankful for the care I got. And my doc was just like, I just, I think I felt like if I could do what he did, that a life and career worth living. And so that was number one. And I think too, I, I, I was able to get into some other schools, but I would not advise anyone to, to take my approach to med school application. I didn't take Orgo before taking the MCATs, so I just kind of wung it. And I think that luckily I had a story that was somewhat interesting that maybe made me a little different than the average applicant. I did well enough to get my foot in the door, and I think that USIS recognized that why I wanted to do it was kind of goes along with the reasons that they they think a doc should be, and it all worked out. So given your injuries, I could see you being interested in orthopedic surgery, maybe urology, but you chose family medicine. What? How did you get down that road? Yeah. Going into med school, I was thinking either ortho or urology because of my injuries. And to this day, I think in retrospect, I would have been happy with a career in either of those. I think that what happened to me was a realization that I, because I was doing my third year rotations for ortho, like I was doing interview rotations thinking that I was going to go ortho. And what happened was I just, I, and I, I think it's true to this day that the thing that I love more than any medical specific pro like the technical problem while i do i'm interested in the ortho and urology problem it's really the kind of like the case management of guiding someone through their healthcare and and obviously modern family medicine there's some i think that anyone looking at where medicine is going could be a little bit concerned about uh, how were fixated on throughput instead of the the relationship but really i family medicine offered me the opportunity to connect with people in ways that i don't think that i felt when i was when i was doing ortho and neurology whereas um, i think that there probably would have been i just didn't see it at the time like there there are types of patients that are that you provide continuity to and you see for years and years and years but I think primary care, it's just the ability to triage any medical problem and point them in the direction. And even if I'm not the one fixing that problem, I'm their ally in advocating for them to ensure that they're getting the care they need. And that's what I love about what I do. How would you say that your experience as a patient and your experience going through the evacuation system has changed your perspective or made you a better military physician? I'm always hesitant in in telling my story and I think I'm always hesitant to like try to put too much power in in my experience only because I I don't want to make it sound like other people can't develop the skills that I think I've gained from my experiences but I do think that it has on some level it's almost like 
it's the same thing and why I think when I went back and was a an operational doc in a unit, it's it's almost like my prior service. It's like this idea of there being like a shibboleth where I spoke the language, I thought of the world the way they do. Like I still don't think of myself as my identity isn't necessarily only a doc. I still have the kind of feelings of imposter of that guy who didn't know who the PA and the doc was. So I I almost view the medical system, I think, still as an outsider. And I think that that allows me to anticipate how patients are going to, like, we're going to think something is going to work, but they're just not going to get it because they're not indoctrinated the way we all are in the system. And I think that was a a good lesson from being kind of a, a patient. And then I think that there's varying things like like PTSD. I, I felt like that was a, a buzzword that just got thrown around way too much. And it's so tempting as docs to view it as a, as a like this criteria when it, that label didn't capture all of the experiences that the people that I knew who had had a war experience come back from. And so we were like oversimplifying this thing in a way that I don't think patients to this day really often, it doesn't resonate as well with what they're experiencing. And I think being a patient, it does give you a little bit of skepticism that is what we're doing because we're trying to help this patient. Or sometimes we think that the the hospital was always there and it's we need the patients to go through it rather than that the hospital is there solely to serve those patients. It's just, I think that my experiences have maybe given me a little bit of protection to fall into those traps. So one of your assignments as a family medicine physician was getting a chance to go back to Germany and work at Launchstuhl. And this was a little bit after the high op tempo from the wars in Southwest Asia. But how was it going back to Launchstuhl and being part of the team that, that takes the evacuations from the theaters of war? You know, I think Shame is too strong a word, but I think that there was a part of me that at some point when I was like trying to decide what I wanted to do, I think there was like this created path that was, I was going to do what my doc did and I was going to take care of patients like me. And, and then, you know, when I thought about the kind of doc I wanted to do, like no decision is ever like a hundred percent all in and one you, you almost have a little bit of, you have to grieve the other outcome that didn't become a thing. And so when I got to Launchville, I think there, there was an initial thought like, oh man, I'm going to be doing like primary care and I'm not really dealing with any evacuated patients. But what happened weirdly, I think serendipitously, is that I ended up being the PCM of all of the medical staff. So I was the PCM of the urologist. I was the PCM of the orthodox. And it was like a weird way that I ended up becoming the caretaker, the doc for the people, the descendants of the people who took care of me. And maybe we all create ways to connect dots and stuff, but that was very rewarding for me to, to be able to, to do that. And in a way that I think that was the capstone of my career, I feel like I am sated in that I did what I wanted to do, and now all of this is bonus. So you kind of have a a pretty cool job now working at the Supreme Allied Powers Europe 
in Belgium. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and uh, about that job. I didn't know much about it. I think I had heard about it when I was stationed in Germany, but I didn't know much about it. But Shape is a, a NATO headquarters. I think the best way of thinking about it is Shape is like the Pentagon of the NATO alliance. And so because of that, we have a clinic there and we take care of Americans, but we have mixed in with our, our staff. We have some ally docs who I'm the DCCS for and talk about just an amazing collegial experience. My everyday job is like an international medical conference where we kind of work through the, the weird idiosyncrasies of how care is delivered in, with, from docs from all the NATO countries. Um, we have six ally docs who work in our clinic. And uh, so I think that's an amazing part of it. The, the other thing that's really cool is what better way to, to build strong feelings and of an alliance than like the gift it is to take care of our allies and present army medicine or military medicine and U.S. medicine to them. If we do a good job, we have a chance of making them feel strongly a positive feeling towards the United States for potentially generations. And so it's really a cool place to, to be. And then I think most importantly, with everything that's going on in Europe right now, to, to be able to take care of the people who are very involved in the, the current operations is also a, a thing that I think we're all really proud of. So I know that you have children and they may not be at the point where they're making career decisions, but let's say when they're in high school, college, and they come to you or their friends come to you and say, hey, I'm thinking about a career in military medicine. What would you tell them? The opportunities I've had are, are just, I mean, I can't, I can't say enough how my life was changed by people who just did things for me that I just will never be able to to pay back. To be able to distill what was a really rough year of my life, I came out of that experience because of compassion and dedication to make sure that that I was well. And and so, aside from just my life as a doc, just my life as a patient was, I was so in awe of the people who took care of me. And then now. To see the system as a doc is also just so amazing. And I think why I'm often a little bit bashful about telling my story is I, I don't want to tell it too much because I don't want it to sound like, like, oh, this is amazing what he did. Hopefully people who hear this realize like, yeah, you, you, had a, a, you just had a very socially acceptable coping strategy to, to deal with adversity. But I'm more impressed by all the people around me who who didn't have a story like I had, who just decided that taking care of soldiers and taking care of their fellow human was a life that they wanted to live. And there's so many sacrifices we do to take care of people. And I'm just so in awe of the people that, that I work with that I'm in the final third of my career. And, and I'm sure when I talk to people Everyone says that what they miss is people that they served with in military medicine. And I, and I feel like that's going to be, I actually have very little <laughs> excitement about going into civilian medicine 
because I think I will, I'll miss the type of people I serve with. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Christian Labra on Wardocs podcast. Chris, thanks again for sharing your experiences and your insights with us. And thank you for your service to the nation. Really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for listening to Wardocs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. Wardocs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.